KBTC, a viewer-supported community service of Bates Technical College. From KBTC Public Television Studios in Tacoma, Washington, it's the Northwest Now podcast. Each week we take a closer look at the people and issues that affect all of us here in Western Washington. So sit back, relax, and join the conversation with your host, Tom Lason. The Lost Salmon, the latest documentary from filmmaker Shane Anderson, part of his continued effort to explain and warn about the demise of salmon runs all along the West Coast, this time focusing on the mightiest salmon species, Spring Run Chinook. Our discussion with filmmaker Shane Anderson and a look at the possibility of the extinction of the Springers is next on Northwest Now. Northwest Now has spent a lot of time documenting the efforts to restore dwindling salmon runs in the Pacific Northwest, including programs I shot and produced like Saving the Salmon, Shorelines of Stone, and Picking Up the Past. One thing that keeps coming forward is just how many interconnected issues there are impacting the demise of salmon, and that to really understand what's happening, you can't just think about one habitat or one race of salmon or one region. You have to look at the entire West Coast, and that's what filmmaker Shane Anderson does in his ambitious two-year, four-state project, The Lost Salmon. I've spent the better part of the past decade documenting wild salmon, the places they live, and the issues they face. The magic of wild salmon is their connection to place. With every species, life history, and migration, genetically designed and intimately connected to their home waters and ecological communities. There are still some places left on Earth where you can see landscapes come alive during the annual migrations. But closer to home, the fabric that wild salmon weave throughout the Northwest continues to unravel at alarming rates, with many species from many places at risk. As the first salmon to arrive home, the spring run of Chinook have one of the most fascinating migrations in the animal kingdom. They are a species of desire for an entire ecosystem, but victims of a modern world. They've been the sacrament and cornerstone for some of the oldest civilizations in North America, and one of the most sought after fish on earth that triggers a cult-like following of fishermen. Chinook have the largest range out of any Pacific salmon, but springers only exist in the southern end, where over half the genetically unique populations have already been extirpated. So why has one of the most revered animals on Earth been allowed to virtually disappear from the vast number of rivers they once called home? And what does their future hold? These questions led me on a two-year journey throughout salmon country. In search for the last wild springers, while exploring their connection to people and place, and a new genetic discovery that could help save the king of salmon before it's too late. 
Shane Anderson last appeared on Northwest Now when we discussed his film about the Chehalis River called A Watershed Moment, where a new flood control dam is proposed. This new film ties several of his films together with a broad discussion of the status of spring-run Chinook salmon, a prized species slowly blinking out all across the Northwest. Shane, thanks so much for coming back to Northwest Now with yet another uh, fantastic film in my estimation about um, the situation facing uh, one of the most important resources here in the Northwest and the West in general, um, the, the salmon. I want to start a little bit with transparency. I always want to talk about your funding sources, how this got made, just so people know, um, you know who's paying for this and how it got done. So talk a little bit, how did this film come about and, and how did you end up getting it funded? Yeah, you bet. So actually, last time I was in here talking about my last film, Chehalis Watershed Moment, it was during the filming of that that I got interested in the salmon genetics and the new genetic discovery around Spring Chinook and getting more interested in the overall plight. So, you know, originally I was like, oh, I'll make a short film out of it. Two years later, it ended up being a feature. And over the course of the time, I had to do a lot of grant writing. That's how I fund a lot of my pieces through grants and private donations through fiscal sponsors. And that's one of the things, too. The reason I asked that question is because you're, you're free in your filmmaking to come to any conclusion. You're not making this on, on the basis of somebody where you're expected to find a conclusion. You can, you can follow your nose and let the facts lead you. Absolutely. You know, and I mean, as a science-driven film and, you know, the main character is Mike Miller, the, the geneticist. I was really interested in going down that thread because salmon genetics, I find, are, are the, one of the most fascinating things in the entire animal kingdom and one of the most complex. So I'm really going down that science road. And that's one of the amazing things about this story when it comes to water, fish resources, and specifically, specifically the Pacific salmon. Um, it's a story that once you start telling it, 20 other stories, literally 20 other stories emerge. Um, it is an onion that you can just keep peeling and peeling. Um, and the genetic piece, expand a little bit on that. Why, why does that add a layer of complexity? And what hope for saving species does a further understanding of the genetics bring us? Yeah, I mean, salmon genetics are, are so unique because of the local adaptation salmon um, have co-evolved with the landscapes in the Northwest. And through that adaptation, they've evolved to specific rivers and creeks. So there are, you know, might be, we might call Chinook one species, but there are tens of thousands of genetically unique lineages of Chinook. Uh, that, you know, there's the differences of migration, but there's also the local adaptations. For example, an Elwha Chinook is different than a Skagit Chinook, which is different than, you know, a Columbia River Chinook. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the complicating factors too, is that they're very discreet genetically. They do, historically, they do their own things in their own creeks and rivers, but they also have this massive coming together up in the ocean, up in the Bering Sea, and some of those places where harvest takes place. And there's been a little breaking news since you and I even discussed doing this program, which was a judge up in Alaska um, ruled that, you know, they're gonna have to take a really hard look about ocean harvest now um, when it comes to springers, particularly, because of the threat that that poses to returns in the food web down here in the Salish Sea. Talk a little bit about that, and I guess just gesture at that interconnectedness a little bit. Yeah, well, what you're referring to up in Alaska is mixed stock fisheries. So, you know, there's fisheries happening, but that's where all these fish from all over the West Coast are congregated. It's the nursery, it's the feeding ground. So, you know, there's populations like the Quinault population that was down to 43 fish this last year. You know, I mean, we're talking extinction levels and a lot of the Spring Chinook uh, populations are in the tens of fish right now. So they're commingling with like healthy populations up in Alaska and potentially getting picked off 
you know, up there, and we just have no idea at what rate. And then when they return to their individual creek or, or river, they are not passing through um, our resident orca population that depends on them. Absolutely. You know, they were, they were the original stakeholders, the orcas here. So I'm, I'm happy to see some, um, you know, movement in that direction to try to figure out, you know, what, are the what is the harvest impacts on these really fragile populations that are on the brink of extinction. In this film, you focus on springers, and, and they're amazing. The, the athleticism, the, the tremendous journey they take, um, some of them thousands, you know, more than a thousand miles, I think, in the case of Snake River. Um, it's, it, they're an amazing species, amazingly strong, um, just world-class athletes. Um, in your mind, what makes this, uh, you know, I've given my speech, what, what makes the springer so special in your mind when you observe these fish and have really talked to some of the people who study them specifically? Yeah, so, you know, spring chinook are the most revered, most prized salmon, mostly because of their taste. And they do taste phenomenal because of their fat content, because they come in a little premature and have to spend a lot of their freshwater li uh, life in fresh water before spawning. Um, but what I like about spring chinook is their journey, you know, their migrations. And that's what make them so much, uh, that's what make them special and different than a fall run chinook as they go on these migrations to the Sawtooth Mountains in Idaho. And they're, you know, like one of the characters says in my movie, they're the uh, mariners and mountaineers of the salmon world. So we're talking about thousand mile migrations and climbing 6,500 feet in elevation. I mean, it's just such an incredible journey and that's, that's where my reverence for the species is. Yeah, it's very, very understandable. The other thing is too, historically, a lot of the pictures you see of people holding these fish, these, these big ones, um, the Native Americans and, and uh, um, you know, settlers as well, are the spring Chinook, the giants. Um, but they just don't have the size anymore. And that's true against, uh, across a lot of the salmon species that we are seeing their sizes diminish. Is, what do you, is that a function of habitat, harvest, everything? <laughs> What's your take on that? Yeah, it's a combination of all of the above. Um, you know, dams definitely stopped that migration. You know, those fish, those big June hogs in the Columbia that got 120 pounds that used to stop stern wheelers from the, the amount of gravel they created in their nests, uh, you know, they just lost their habitat. And they, we literally lost the genetic code already in two thirds of the Columbia River population. And, you know, genetics is like an instruction manual. So size is part of that genetics. So when we lose entire populations that were adapted for these upriver populations that had to fight through big water conditions and go on these epic journeys, you know, we lose some of that forever. So what we're really trying to do right now is to hold on to the building blocks for recovery. You did a lot of legwork in this movie. You've been to a lot of different locations. Talk a little bit about, name some of the locations you went to and, and if you can, talk a little bit about how this is a regional issue. I tend to focus on Puget Sound because we're here in Puget Sound country. It's where the TV station and our audience is. But you can't, it, this is a regional or even a, maybe not hemispheric, but I mean, you, you look at this problem from space, right? Yeah, absolutely. One of the unique things about Spring Chinook is their range is in the Pacific Northwest, um, you know, because up further in Alaska, they become more of a summer Chinook because of snow melt and ice. So it's really, a, you know, a, a native species here from about, uh, you know, the Sacramento River in California up to the Fraser River in BC. So I wanted to get kind of a snapshot of some of the most diverse uh, populations left in their range. So 
everywhere from going to the interior middle fork of the Salmon River in Idaho the, to the Mariner and Mountain Mirror population, down to California to the Klamath region where you know, some of those populations are down to 100 fish that we saw in the snorkel count, yet we have dam removal coming, but we've already lost the genetics in that upper basin. So now there's this conundrum trying to figure out how to recover a species in the face of the largest river restoration project the world has, has seen because we've lost that genetic code. And I don't want to get political with you, but it always comes in, in into the conversation, particularly when you're talking about dam busting. Um, Having been through the experience you've had with, with shooting this film and others, what are your thoughts or feelings about Snake River? Well, I've, I feel like they're the, just like the report came out, the, the Inslee-Murray report, that there are alternatives. There is no more alternatives for salmon. You know, The West has been built on the backs of salmon, and I feel like we need to you know, innovate our way out of the, the benefits the dams produce to save the salmon. That's the last, uh, that's the last thing we could possibly do taking those Breach, dams out. Breaching the lower four snake river dams. Is it too late? No, it's not too late. There's still, I've seen the populations with my own eyes now up there. And once you see those salmon make that incredible journey, and we're talking about populations down to 100 fish, 50 fish in some creeks, you know, sitting there watching them, and you know, it gives you a whole new uh, reverence for the species, but also you know, motivating that we can, we can come up with solutions. We, we don't need every single dam in the Northwest. Yes, hydropower is important, but you know, so are salmon. Yeah, and, and there's the navigation piece for agricultural products and taking, you know, you take a barge out of the water, you're putting trucks on the road. So there's so many trade-offs. Again, it's another case of that kind of onion peeling discussion you always get into when it comes to water and resources and those things you know it's a it's a very complex question um, but I think I am in, you know it's it's encouraging that you feel that that they're savable that we haven't gotten to the point where you know interventions aren't going to matter anymore um, when you talk to people in some of those communities what are their thoughts about it what's your experience with talking to in, indigenous peoples but also other stakeholders well, yeah, I mean, the science is pretty clear that, you know, breaching those dams, there's, there could be a potential threefold increase, and you couple that with uh, increased flow at the other dams, that's a potential fourfold increase. And we know that the genetics are there, and these are some of the most unique genetics left in salmon country up in the Snake Basin, and some of the best habitat left. So, you know, I've seen salmon come back before. They're just a miraculous species, but, but they can't come back if, we, if they lose their instruction manual, their genetics. One of the We're about four generations away from that. Okay, yeah, because returns mm -hmm. keep dwindling. They've got some captive brood programs, but that is, that is really just a break glass in case of emergency solution to a lot of this. Um, in your previous film, I believe, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the, the Chehalis has lost its Chinook salmon run, correct? No, we, it's still barely hanging on, too. It is, yep. okay. Um, is... Is it possible, I know there have been some experiments, and I didn't know if you talked to the scientists at all about taking one run and trying to get it to transfer over to become another run and develop its own genetic characteristics. If I, I think your point's well taken that we've lost some of those genetics. Is it possible to remake new ones to, to take Green River Chinook and put them into another, into another creek and let them become a native run? Is that possible? The old Heinz 57 fish. Yeah. Combine a bunch of stuff together. You know, they've been trying that since the 1800s. Okay. And they actually started trying that in the upper Sacramento River, and they tried to distribute spring Chinook all across the world. Um, and they actually did take in New Zealand and uh, South America down in Chile. But, 
it hasn't worked. I mean, if, if, if that had worked, we wouldn't be in this crisis right now that we're, that we're facing. I mean, lo local adaptation is so important to everything from the timing of these fish jumping over barriers and waterfalls. With to, the flows. With the flows yeah. to when they properly spawn. So, you know, messing with genetics is, it's a, we have not been able to outfox nature on that one even with some of the new science that still looks like probably not a possibility. I haven't seen it work. Yeah, interesting. So better, better to just keep what we have and try to recover and yeah. build on those building blocks. Yeah. Meanwhile, and you and I talked about this too, kind of a strange phenomena, the fish with less complex life cycles, pink and chum specifically I'm thinking about, are thriving in apparently poor ocean conditions, warmer water, and they're going crazy. Does that actually pose a threat or are they off cycle enough where they won't, wouldn't interfere with the restoration effort? I'm, I'm almost wondering if we have to hurt one run of salmon to try to promote another, or do you think they're discreet enough where that's not a problem? It's definitely creating a density dependent problem out in the Pacific gyre. And, and it's predominantly from increases of hatchery production in Japan and Russia and Alaska on pink salmon. And there's some really fascinating new research that comes out in these really big pink gears where we're flooding the ocean with all these salmon that Chinook numbers and steelhead numbers actually go down. So there's a direct correlation with putting too many mouths out in the Pacific and hurting you know, the species we're trying to recover. I jokingly said my next assignment, I don't assign you just to make this clear. <laughs> I have you come in to talk about your films, but I have nothing to do with them. I think there's a, a big piece to be done when it comes to ocean conditions. Something's happening out there. We know there's some harvest. We know there's some pH. We know there's the blob that we've talked about. What is, in your, in your side conversations, it wasn't the focus of this film, but what are, the, what are people who know this topic telling you a little bit about what their speculation about what's going wrong in the ocean, where you might have a good send out, but we're not getting a good return? Well, it all comes uh, you know, through the trophic cascade of uh, you know, bait fish and the indirect effects of what warming ocean conditions do for, for what salmon eat, really, and the food sources and how fast they grow. So you know, we used to be going kind of in this cycle called the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, where we would have really good ocean conditions above the Columbia River, and then it would swap to the, to the runs below the Columbia River, and that would happen every 15 years. And now with climate change and climate impacts, it's kind of all been you know, up in the air. So it seems like we've turned a corner with the ocean you know, becoming more productive for the bait fish. And we're starting to see a little increase in salmon. This, year, this year's spring Chinook run was better than when we were out filming. So that uh, you know, gives me some optimism. And there's another example of that, of that chain, that food web, you know, the importance of bait fish, the importance of shore armoring, and all those things on the production of bait fish, and what's going on out there in the ocean. It, it really is amazing. What do you think's next for you? Because there are, there are 19 different directions you could go. Which one are you going to pick? Well, I've kind of spent the last 10 years focusing on salmon and rivers, so I'm wrapping up a uh, film with the Nez Perce tribe out in Idaho to kind of delve into uh, the snake snake dam uh, issue a little bit. And really it's a portrait about them and what they're facing losing salmon, which is like salmon, which is the covenant, you know, of their, of their culture and the, the, the cornerstone. So it's a really beautiful film will be done this fall. Also in production on undamming the Klamath, which is the biggest river restoration project the world's ever seen. We've been filming for three years. We got another three to go and um, just really, really excited about some of the stuff that's happening. And what's happening on the Klamath? That, does that have a spring run as well? I think you might have mentioned it earlier if I missed it. What, what are the, what are, what's at stake there on the Klamath? Yeah, so it's removing four 
old hydroelectric dams and uh, four big ones, and it's going to open up 400 miles of habitat to salmon. That's kind of why it's the largest salmon recovery project in history. And, um, you know, we've lost the genetics above the dams, but there's still some genetics uh, in tributaries below the dams, some populations. But it does uh, present that, um, you know, question, like how will Spring Run recolonize without the local adapted genetics? Other species are going to have no problem. The fall chinook, the steelhead, the coho, they're going to, I guarantee you they're going to come back just like we saw in the Elwha. Spring Chinook's going to be a bigger challenge. That was my next question for you. It's been several years since I was up at the Elwha. Um, did a little bit with the Elwha Klamath tribe, talking about the dam um, restoration. At the time I was up there, they were still trying to get vegetation back, and it was very early days after the removal of the dam. What are you hearing um, in your discussions with people about how that has gone? Have, have there been improvements there? Oh, it's just been fascinating to see the river river come back. You know, I mean, the biggest, you know, success story from what I've documented and experienced was that of the steelhead because steelhead, unlike salmon, hold the genetic component in rainbow trout. So the Elwha never lost that upper genetic population. So as soon as the dams came out, those, uh, those rainbow trout went to the ocean and became steelhead and came back. And we were seeing some of the biggest runs in the whole in the whole uh, state of Washington, you know, there is a question, did having the dams in the Elwha, was there a genetically unique spring run genetic component that was lost? We are seeing some good numbers uh, of re repopulating the lower river, but there's definitely some genetic questions there too. Yeah, and the reformation of the estuary there really helped with bait fish and all those other all those other pieces required to have a strong fish run in a particular stream or river. Um, are you still a one-man band shooting these things? Talk a little bit about your process. Uh, we've talked a lot about salmon and the, and the topics, but what is it when Shane Anderson goes out to shoot a film? Is it a guy in a pickup truck with a camera? What's it look like? <laughs> I'm evolving. I'm growing. I'm maturing <laughs> as a filmmaker. I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate to be able to have more of a crew now out in the field, which has been a, a complete blessing. But for this particular project, for the Lost Salmon, I was predominantly a one-man band, especially in the, in the post-production. I did all the editing, and, um, but all these other projects, I'm starting to, to work with other people and collaborate, and really enjoying that process. And I notice you've got some nice graphics in there, which I think are so essential in these things, particularly when you're talking about trying to show the map, these long migrations, the interconnected nature of some of these runs. You have to have that graphic support, so you are pulling some other talent in. Absolutely, yeah. So illustrators, graphic designers, motion graphics, sound mixers, color graders, you know, that whole post-production team I rely on really heavily, you know, composers. And then um, I pretty much do all the editing. Your film will be showing on KBTC Public Television, which is, is great. We're happy to have that and a few clips here on Northwest Now. But once you get a completed film, I've never done the film circuit. It's always been broadcast on the TV side. What do you do with that completed film? Do you try to go to film contests or what's, what's the process once you have, have that nugget? Yeah, so we got the film festival circuit, which will kind of roll all throughout next year. So be sure to Keep an eye out because it's always awesome to watch it in a theater setting with other people and we will do some kind of a grassroots tour this winter where I'll bring some of the folks that were in the film, some of the scientists to kind of have open discussions and you know that, that's what I want all these films to do is is just to open up some dialogue that we can have whether you um, you know whether we disagree on some of the solutions or, or not you know at least it's that it kickstarts some dialogue. Yeah, it's so vital that it is discussed. Last 30 seconds for you. 
when you take everything that you've learned, which I know is a lot, and everything you've produced and you hold it in your hands, are you ultimately optimistic or pessimistic about the revitalization of, of the spring run and, and Pacific Northwest salmon in general? Yeah, I think with um, a lot of the new science that, that's coming out, it's really helping change the paradigm and how we manage these species. So I'm very optimistic. And now we just need some public support to uh, support the science and the policy. All right, Shane Anderson, thanks so much for coming again to Northwest Now. Thank you, Tom. Our thanks to Shane Anderson for sharing his work and his thoughts on what he's learned. I've been covering parts of this story for a couple of decades here and in California. And while I think there are many strikes against salmon, especially spring run Chinook, the bottom line, we can't just throw up our hands and give up on trying to assure their future survival and even abundance.